Proverbs chapter 16, picking it up at verse 12. We'll see if we can conclude in this. If it has a feel like we've been there before, it's because in the maxims of Proverbs, there are repetitive themes. They may be phrased differently. They may have attachments or addendums to other ones that you've mentioned, and that's good. That's fine. But one of the things that you may say is, huh, it seemed like that had a relatability back then. I'm not sure if I'm catching it now. It may not be for your catch on this time. But it is something that is important that as a central theme about the book of Proverbs is moral issues, integrity, righteousness. And those are the things that Solomon is privileged to be able to bring out to us. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. So this is about governance. When we see kings, that is autocratic. It is under an old system that isn't necessarily what we look at. But there is definitely being spoken about as the responsibility for kings, those in high executive authority. And generally, as that would have been Solomon's position, David, before him, there is an advance with regard to ultimately what's going to happen with Israel's kingdom. If it says it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, after Solomon, Israel committed wickedness. The whole split happened because Solomon allowed his reign to ultimately be perverted and there was a judgment that happened through his son, as you remember, in our Second Kings, First Kings teachings, Rehoboam. And so as we're moving through First and Second Kings, first in remembrance, second presently, it all just says, wow, everything falls apart when the executive branch fails in government. So when you see things in culture falling apart, it's the head honchos in government that have permitted that, the allowance of wickedness to prevail. And probably one of the biggest allowances of wickedness was the rejection of God through both the judiciary, through the Congress, and making seemingly laws that permitted it. It's gone bonkers. But the sin is that we have neglected God We've chosen to say we can be good human beings and we can have strategies for humankind and the other misnomer is and we can all coexist. That's not true. The only way that we can coexist is to exist, acknowledging the one who created us and fashioned us for a societal contribution, but most importantly for a spiritual indulgence. We're to be those who actually live to be spiritual beings. And it doesn't matter, per se, where you are vocationally. You're still a spiritual being that operates best when your employment of the gifts that God has given to you are manifested in the places that God puts you. The best, in my opinion, in the positions of executorship, government, are those who love God and they come in as an ambassador of God and they find themselves 
in stature, having favor with God and man. Now, I also say that because, you know, we have one of our own who is God's own man. And I, I do say this with, I think, great confidence. He answers me in great humility. But Rivers is uh, running for supervisor, second district in Crescent City. Why wouldn't we want to pray for him? Yeah. Um, and he did that so politely, too. He could have just gone, woohoo, but he just. Um, but, but I'm very proud of him. A stellar career as a, as a man in the Navy. You know, he was the one that drove the. Nope, say it. I got it. I got it. The Nimitz. Okay. Nuclear-powered. I mean, he was the guy that literally floated the boat, you know, made those hard turns and commanded. Did you make any decisions about rockets prepared to fire? Okay, but in your mind, you thought of it. <laughs> Amen. I came from a Marine Corps family. So that though, is important to realize that among us is one positioned like Joseph to be raised up. We should be praying for him, cheering him on. We have another, just got back off the road, and that's John, who's a commissioner in our side of the, of the line. That's an important place to be. We want to have these men, these women, who find an opportunity to enter a door and to be able to say, we're praying for you, cheering you on in that next step of representing God. When the godless are replaced by the godly, there are things that change that are good. And even though we know that we're in our last days in which things must, by just the fact that when a society rebels and God's patience has clocked out, not that he's impatient, but that it's time to bring the church up and home, then we can be at rest with whatever we were able to do in that blink in which we're taken out of it. So continue doing well in everything that we are doing, but pray for those who have opportunity to make executive decisions and influence. Um, you don't have any more um, campaigns or, or meetings where you're debating, right, or presenting yourself? When's the radio interview? Okay. Um, can you keep us posted so we can both hear that and pray for you on it? Okay, great. So Rivs will keep us posted, but I went to uh, one of his forums where the lineup of those who were vying for position in the vote were there. And I, he was my favorite speaker, you know. The others are kind of went... Uh, but Rivers was like, yes. So. And so the other thing that we see here is that in positions of highest authority, which is what the kings would represent when they commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness, it means that God very likely will be somewhere in that situation to bring ultimately a correction. We need to also remind ourselves that when there's an allowance for 
instance, an individual that's exercising in wickedness, around the corner, God is bringing someone up to exercise righteousness. And he allows the lineage of men to take a pace that regards, if you would, the lifespan of a man. That's why something about Second Kings that is, you know, for us difficult to, you know, really, I think, chew on is that he's letting literally the lineage and the chronology of a man's age and the consequences of their times, be it disease or demise, that means assassinations that very often took place in these days, um, he allows that to play out. For us, it's slow, but I made that comparison that our country is a baby compared to where Israel has been. And even though we can say, aren't they still secular? They are still highly secular, but inside, Hearts also have been converted to love God because they, they recognize, as we do, that they are believers in Jesus. And so though they are Jews, they are actually members of the body of Christ. And they, too, are in positions in which their word becomes perhaps even more effectual because when you and I go there, we have a prohibition in being able to speak about Jesus. Believe it or not, that's in play. Proselytizing in Israel is against the law. That's what they haven't set in place. And so if you remember Carl Palinka's Pastor Carl, when he goes over there, it's not illegal to answer a question, which means an Israeli can forge a question to you that you have the right to answer, and it's on them. It's not on you. Because they say, I asked them that. Release them. I want to hear more. And so they walk off, and the handcuffs are on the ground. I don't know if anybody has, but it is a law, so you can't do that. But they can be provoked to ask you why it is, as a believer, you're in their country, and being so enthralled and being so kind, and all the things that they know by how you represent Jesus, you're doing there. So I just wanted to share that with you. A throne is established by righteousness, and righteousness is one of the central attributes of God. He does right. He is right. He wrote the law on rightness. And that's why, as we're growing up, we are taught morals and norms, sociological terms, that identify what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, perverted or pure. These are the assignments that as parents we have to lead and raise our children in the ways of the Lord, correcting them, inspiring them, guarding their hearts, and continually offering them to the Lord for hearts that beat for him. All of us have had that experience where our youth gave way to maturity and our passion for God increased and our desire to be where he's one, in my opinion, most effective is in the body and with regard to the word that we learn. Righteous lips are the delight of kings 
and they love him who speaks what is right. And so what's being said here is that God really did have on his heart and in his mind that in the governance of people in a position of high authority, that it would be a delight for kings, those he permitted to be in a spot, to do the right thing. That's a classic slogan. I think that's Nike, isn't it? Do the right thing. Was that one of their slogans? Did I get that? Nike? No? Adidas? You're telling me that I, I'm fabricating? <laughs> no, what was do the, There was something. Do, do it? Okay, you know what they meant. <laughs> Just do it. Do the right thing. That wasn't kick a neighbor. You know I'm right. Okay, so... <laughs> Just do it. But as you hear that, the Lord would say, just do it right. Do it like I do it. <laughs> okay, thank you for correcting me. I receive. But notice this. They love him who speaks what is right. Very often... Love seems to be hidden, but it's revealed when right things are done. There seems to be at times we want, am I, am I loved? Even kings, am I loved? Do the right thing, and you'll see the evidence of that. What else will you have evidence of? The contrary, which is the ugly mouth and disposition of those who are intent to do evil. It seems to be both, and sometimes one or the other, and it seems to be prevailing in these days with a lot of evil. But God's love truly does break through and changes everything about what has been spoken and the disposition of the sinister in manners that do cause us to say, why am I even in this? Why bother? Even in the public school system, which I saw change radically, in my early 20s to the time that I just entered my 30s, it was a different generation coming up line. The kindergartners were like, you got to be kidding me. They said that? They did that? How in the world? So that was back, you know, in 82. I was a 25-year-old, 82, 83, so you can do the math. And I was 31 when I left teaching. And it had changed radically because the format of the education system had become so liberal and the homes had become so dysfunctional, you could see it. So basically, you know, we right now, and this is, I think, truly homegrown, is that we said enough of this. We're going to do homeschooling. That's what we're going to do. And I think you know that the stats are saying that the homeschoolers are increasing both dynamically uh, and exponentially in their knowledge and understanding of what we would say were the basics, and even beyond that, in the sciences. We're not getting tripped over the stuff that has no bearing on righteous living, holy acclamation. We have strong kids. Some would say, yeah, but they don't seem to be so social. Well, God isn't asking us to raise our kids to be so social. He's asking them and he's asking us, would you raise them spiritual? I'll take care of the social thing in increments. 
I'll have them in the right groups. I'll have them actually so brilliant and so reserved that those who are walking in darkness and who prevail in perversity won't even know that I got them. I showed grace to them. I changed their mind about things. That's, that's how powerful we are. So social awkwardness, big deal. Who hasn't been socially awkward? I am, even now. Check me out at breakfast. I'm socially awkward. I still eat like a teacher. Where's Rich? Because typically I don't sit down. Somehow as a teacher I was trained to eat really fast so that I could capture as much recess for myself in the recesses of my mind to finish the day off well. So I'm not really antisocial at all. But part of it too is processing the management of a breakfast or a dinner to hear someone that may want to grab just a little piece of me while the little piece of bacon is still in my mouth. But I'm really not antisocial. It's just that if I have to choose, I'll tuck away to finish breakfast earlier so that I can be a little bit more available as the, as the day advances. But thank you, parents that are raising your kids in the love of the Lord and in the counsel of God. Well, it goes on again in contrast on verse 14. It, it says, and they love him who speaks what is right. Verse 14 says, as messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. Now, we know that we are entitled and encouraged to ask for wisdom, which means God also has given us the tools to cool down somebody who's boiling over. And that takes a gifting. It takes, in my opinion, an assertive but very measured patience to do that. We've been employed by men and women that fly off the handle. I, how, who, who has not been tutored by anger before? God does use anger to tutor us on how not to be. It's just a fact. I think that I became a gentle teacher because I had ruthless teachers when I was growing up. The 50s generation, we were raised the hard way. I'm saying not in a bad way. I'm saying in a good way, we were raised with great strictness in the school system in particular. And some would say, well, that's wrong. I learned a lot about how to be respectful. I learned a lot about the consequences of bad choices because we were assertively corrected within the minute of the crime. And so we learned, both athletically too. I think that there's some here today that would say our coaches really knew how to trim our wicks to quelch our pride to cause us to pull together as a team. It was always done at the cost of pride. It always had the sting of humiliation. But in some manner, God used those very, very hard years to forge a character that says, I'm not giving up. I've had it hard. I've had it worse. But the generation before us perhaps even had it more challenging because we at least grew up with some conveniences, even some avenues in which I could say we could escape. But that being said is that when there is seemingly ruthlessness that is upon you, guess what God's going to do to you? He's going to make you into a Ruth. 
Ruthlessness is an unnecessary behavioral, I suppose, management or carelessness or brutality that someone really is doing in their flesh. We can't necessarily that say that they'll never, ever be kind or good, but in this season, God's going to use them to make you into a Ruth, to make you into one who with sensitivity and impresses those. You know, Ruth was one who, who actually had a very hard upbringing. She did. She lost in her trials and tribulation family members, kids. And she was spotted, though, among the maidens of a man who owned the land, and that was Boaz. And he saw her among those who were laboring and said to himself, that is a hard-working woman. And the other thing that we see is that God was working through someone who was actually a Moabitess, out, wasn't part of the crew. God had her. So I just like saying that is that, you know, if you're going through a season in which it's hard and someone has anger management problems that they're exercising on you, God's giving you an opportunity as well to be shaped by it and to not be like that person. And actually in not being like that person, you will teach that person. Men in education used to be considered, you know, rare. And the ones that usually the education system got, they were considered unnecessarily difficult. But I will tell you that in the difficulty of both being instructed by women and men, I learned from both of them. And I didn't become like them. I praise the Lord for that. And so these things right now with regard to this idea of wrath, a wise person, you do have an opportunity to appease it. That doesn't mean bribe it. You have an opportunity to quench it. You have an opportunity to see something in that wrathful person that if they heard it, would they hear the whisper of God? Is it possible that in your moment you could stand between literally a condemning situation which both parties are going to lose and may even harm each other, but you've interceded in such a way in which the appeasement came through, counsel that God gave you, wisdom that flowed to you because you took God at his word. It's risky because when you get involved between two individuals or in particular a wrathful king, that means a judgment that is ruthless could be, if you would, an assault. You're willing to say but God's enabled me. I can do this. If it's a danger to you, God would say to you, that's dangerous. I hear your heart, but I'm going to actually give you wisdom now. Run. <laughs> Woo. And the Lord did that to me on multiple occasions. So the wrath of a king, a wise man who has petitioned God for wisdom, can appease it. I think it's our duty in the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. This is telling you God's heart for a king. And it's also a wonderful, in my opinion, parallel to our king, Jesus. Lord of lords, king of kings, he is truly one 
that is remarkable to see in the Spirit. We all have impressions of Jesus. And it's interesting. We all recognize somebody's impression of Jesus. I have in my office a print that's pen and ink. It apparently was put together by a prisoner who was an artist, and he had a vision to write the entire, I believe, Gospel of John, and to do so as an artist and create an image of Jesus. So Jesus is over my desk. Technically speaking, you would agree and say, that's totally Jesus. But the reason that I say that is because when I look at him, he isn't wearing the crown, but I know he's the king of kings. He's the shepherd. He's the rabbi in the picture. It's totally him. And I just believe that one of the things we need to see is that that is both his disposition and it is his desire that we tell the world that this is the king that we love. This is the king that in his sovereignty will have his way and he will rule. And he will rule fundamentally with righteousness that cannot be levied. In the millennial period, he is going to rule with a rod of iron. It will be a beautiful experience to be a part of the kingdom in which he truly is ruling. and We get to rule that with him. Can't even imagine it. Can't even imagine it. But I'm not distrusting. It's just that I can't imagine. I've been to Israel, and I still can't imagine it. I joked that when I got back, I thought, I know I could sweep the streets. I could do that. I could do that really good. I could, I could cart fruit, pomegranates. I, I know that I could do that kind of thing. But to rule and reign, I'm going, I don't get how it works, Lord. And he said, don't worry about it. Now go grab some fruit and eat. But his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain, refreshment. Verse 16 how much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So this does speak seemingly in parallel to our need to work industrially and to have provision for our home. But the Lord is saying, don't neglect this, though. In the process, be one who wisely assimilates truth from God's word, from his counsel. Don't neglect it. That's why we prioritize morning devotions, Bible readings, Bible teachings, because in part, though we are sharing it and though we're absorbing it by reading it, it's the spirit of God actually that is doing all that is essential to his priority and keeping our soul to make it relevant to us. Even if all you get out of this are a few words or maybe some illustrations, God would say to you, like the latter rains, I'm washing you. I'm refreshing you. You may be able to argue it carnally, but spiritually, I'm refreshing you in this moment because it's the living word of God. And so to desire wisdom, it's a great thing. When you turn on your radio, it's not wrong to listen to a variety of music but inevitably, it will never satisfy your need to have spiritual melody and hymns and 
psalms put into your heart. It's, I think there's, there are some that still question, can we have another venue of music? But there's about 378 songs, I believe, that are my favorite. They're the old Maranatha songs that came out of the early Calvary Chapel movement. Those were so touching to me. And every time I come in here and I hear it, the Lord just washes me. To the generation that are enjoying some fabulous worship music that I also enjoy, but the Lord just brings it back to me with the Maranatha music. Don't you know it's time to praise the Lord? <laughs> yes, it is. You know? And it just moves on to other songs that are just so biblically inspiring to me. But to pursue wisdom, it is the knowledge of the holy. To understand God while we have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that's fashioned after his will, and the ability to concede when we resist, to say, Lord, it's yours. It's yours. I got the, I know the first three right. I want to see what you want to show me. I want to hear what you want to say to me. I really want to have this heart be touched by you thoroughly. Oof, I wrestle at times with obedience. God, that's yours. For in giving that to you, just releasing that to you, all of the others have a perfect place to be unquestionably confident in. I see you, Lord. I hear you. My heart beats as yours does. 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. What does God provide for us on this highway that actually in our mind we can see, right? Go on I-5, we've all seen it. And we go, man, there are maniacs out here, and we're one of them. We can be one of them. But truly, it's a dangerous place on the interstate. And one of my questions is, how could we be so brilliant in designing and making roadways and turnoffs and so forth, and we couldn't imagine that I-5 needed to be more than two lanes. That's what I think. And I've been involved in just trying to survive by staying with the wolf pack. But the Lord's taught me, I make detours, Rich, where you can pull off, catch a breath. I do give you detours so that as you slow down and as you allow those who are actually in violation of both safety and speed ordinances, I can get you where you need to go. You don't have to be caught up in that rollout. You don't have to be in the same pace and haste of the world. I give you detours. Take them. And so I've learned that. If the Lord says to smell the rose, that's what I will do. My family knows that I'm a rose smeller. No. <laughs> Not another rose. Yes, it's there. Now, there may be a McDonald's also where the rose is. That's a different issue. <laughs> Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride is obviously one of the things that we are counseled. It is the area that ultimately was the means by which Satan deceived Eve and by which Adam disobeyed God. Deception and disobedience. 
Those are linked to pride. Haughtiness, I always look at it as the adrenal force of pride. It's what activates and propels a person to do what they know that their pride is, is trying to subject them to doing. And so the parallel isn't having anything to do with coffee or tea or anything like that. I just, though, believe that this counsel is, it's one of the most familiar passages in pride, excuse me, about pride in the book of Proverbs, and it's just important to look at it, that pride will always be one of the means by which the enemy, Satan, takes first advantage of us in. And that means, yeah, I didn't think about life that way. I didn't think about the culture that way. Okay, I, I can hear that out a little bit further. It means, in other words, that rather than staying structured to the word, other people's words will have a greater influence on you. And that's where you have to tune it out. You have to say, this is that which God has shown me. That was quote in Acts. That's how they defended the movements that they made. The decisions were, this is that which God has shown me. And that applies in every avenue of your life, every decision. When you can say, God showed me this. Well, what's it doing for you now? It's instilling in me patience to wait upon him and to wait for him, to extend my suffering just another week or day or maybe month. But for me right now, I hedge what I'm going through on God's word, that on the other side of this is both light and resolution. That's what I'm willing to say because I'm so vulnerable to being prideful. I don't mean to. It's just a part of the human. It's a part of the human mind. We're just bent for it. But what happens if you don't get on it or have God take it? Then haughtiness comes in, and that's a tude. That's a tude with the swagger. It just says, look at me. And what God's saying, look at me. He doesn't need a swagger stick. We do. Better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Don't be impressed with the proud. You stay humble, I stay humble, and joy in that, in that compact. Humility. Humility says that we don't make much of ourselves. Other people may, and I do say that's not wrong, as long as you are a gracious recipient in the spirit to say thank you, which I do believe is important. People don't mean wrong in acknowledging the goodness of God that they see in you. When I go through a breakfast line, and, and we have it here, I want to say thank you to my brothers, because those are the ones that are cooking. Thank you so much for what you've done. And I actually make it a point before breakfast or before our teaching to say, can we give the men, the brothers that got here way earlier than us, just an applause from the Lord for the work that they do. And I've never seen one all of a sudden come in with, you know, a big giant bouffant chef hat. They could do it if they want to, you know. Um, glitzy Hollywood uniforms in. 
Iron Chef, yeah. Because they're humble men, but they deserve to know that in their humility, they've served God by serving us. And that's one of the things that, again, in bravado, it's only false if one doesn't mean it, and it's manipulative. If it is spoken, though, it's actually a compliment from God to you. That's actually God just saying, you're doing a good job. I have some people that are going to say that to you. So even yesterday, there was a compliment that came to me upon the day that it was. Totally, totally caught me off guard. But what it did is it inspired me in the moment of that to say, Lord, what do I do with this? And he said, this is what you're going to do. And so for me, he put some people on my heart, and I prayed for them and gave an expression. Though there are many that I want to do that for, I did it for whom I could, and the others simply need to know that is something that God does. It's a wonderful thing when the Lord governs that channel of communique, that he allows us to be servers of him in that capacity. So the humble in spirit are brought there because very likely they've experienced humility and they no longer need that corrective work in their life. Better than dividing the spoil with the proud, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. There you go. Why we're here is to heed the word wisely. Just say, That's a good word. And by the way, I shared that a couple of teachings ago. Might have been a Sunday, could have been a Thursday, but it doesn't matter. To me, they're all like same pot. But I do believe I said it's important to let those whom are instructors of you know the word is good. That's why when you hear me acknowledge the teachers that we have for our college ministry, what am I doing? I'm building them up in the reserve of their faith. Because you know you get attacked after a teaching. You do. And I'm commending them in a manner that's intended to mark them for what they've done. Excellent. But here's what I was saying by that. Somebody just caught that. Let your heart be revealed by saying, that's a good word. And so the week that I said that, out of nowhere, I just hear, that's a good word, man. I would hear this person just say that. That's a good word. And I just heard him be a voice piece, a bugler, for pronouncing as the word of God the goodness of the word. And it just... it. It both fascinated me. It complimented me. He was never looking at me, but sometimes he would look at me and goes, good word. I was going, you're right. It is his word. It is good. It's good for my soul, and it's good that you're practicing extolling the goodness of God's word. You will never know how much of an influence it may be that even when somebody shares something that is personal, with regard to the directive of God for you to say, it's a good word, go in it, and pray for them, receive this. So just wanted to share that with you. 
Heeding the word wisely will find good. Thank you for heeding the word wisely. The promise to you, you'll find good. Has good escaped you? No, it may be just delayed for me. I've had more delays of God's goodness in my life. I can't even journal it all. I chose actually not to journal it. I chose to journal rather instead, good will come of this. Good will come of this. And guess what? Good came of it. I don't have as many years to enjoy it, <laughs> but God allowed good to come of it. So, the wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. So, we've heard that term before. The, the language that is also heard can be sweet language. It just has a place that is easily savored. The Lord knows that we do understand the difference between bitterness and sweetness. And so, again, it's linking the words that we can say and the words that we receive as sweet. And I like that. The idea that the wise heart will be called prudent, don't ever feel that you're insulted if somebody calls you a prude. It's a root word of prudent. And it means actually that you have a reserved, conscious heart for rightness, morality. It's a good word in either manner. It's used as slang in culture if they call you a prude. We don't ever have to be ashamed of that at all. It's the root of prudent. And it means we're linking ourselves and staying committed in both morals and norms that should still be taught today, but which God has never released any other contradictory voice on at all. Yeah, he who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. We're just going to be happy. The wise in heart will be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increase learning, understanding as a wellspring of life to him who has it. But the correction of fools is folly. This, in essence, is saying folly will be the correction of a fool. In other words, their indulgence is folly, and they're going to get corrected by it. What do we do? Well, there was a season. MTV probably brought it about. I think I've shared it before. But they began to exalt folly, to laugh at folly. Folly that actually was both harmful or debauchery was exalted. A guy made probably a fortune doing it, but probably in the process lost much of any integrity that he could have had. He became older being a fool and making money off of folly and leading a generation to do stupidity. Don't know the guy. The program was named after an animal that in the old King James had a word that is derogatory in these days. It's still a good word, meaning that there's no offense to it, but I'll just spare. And so the program that exalted being a donkey it created a herd of donkeys that then began to do their donkey behavior on TikTok and YouTube, getting laughs and hits and all of these things. Because man can find himself easily enamored by stupidity, learning to laugh at it as opposed to pity it. 
So one of the things that we're teaching even for young students right now is, for instance, in Mexico, we didn't have media at all back in 1992 when I was down there. I didn't even know what a cell phone was because phones were actually, if you had one in your car, it was connected to this, like a coiled cord, like a guitar cord would be. And it looked like a lineman's phone. So when we used to admire those people that had cars and phones in their car, they were attached to a guitar gable, that's what it looked like, and it looked like a lineman's phone. But we thought it was cool. Now we look at it and go, that is stupid. <laughs> but when I became a pastor, and one of my duties was to be on duty on the emergency phone, nobody ever taught me how to use a phone. <laughs> it was a Nokia, and they looked like space-age phones. Did anybody remember the Nokia phones? Um, and at any rate, that was handed over to me, but without instruction. And so I'd be going down, for instance, a grocery store aisle, and this phone would ring at me, and I'd be looking around, and I didn't know where it was coming from. And then it would stop, and I go, that's weird. And then it'd ring again. What you think, didn't you feel it in your bridge? Well, we had, we had little phone holsters, so the leather didn't give any type of buzz or anything. But I remember to try and get acclimated to that. And then all of a sudden, the ring. And then when it wasn't buzzing, it was ringing. And then when I answered it, I didn't even know how to turn it off. So my life in the technical realm was really not very impressive. And what I'm saying is that was coming out of Mexico in which none of that was available. We had none of that. If you made a phone call, you drove 35, 40 miles up the road to Tecate and you put coins in the phone, pesos. And so technology to some degree was a saving grace because we were never if you would, enthralled with it. It was so far removed from us that all we could do was take long walks with God, serve the orphans with our hearts. We never faced off with distraction. So this generation, though, and I'm a part of it too as an older person, can be very enamored and distracted by it. So we just said, learn to do without it as much as you can in this season. See if you can minimize how much you're on it for all of us. Because guess what it always wants of you? You. Somehow that phone has a desire for you as much as God does. And we go, God, phone, God, phone. Okay. Hello. <laughs> now, I'm not saying it's your God, but I'm, I am saying that we're asking our college students, see if you can put yourself in a desert mindset and just push it away. Because in about, what, four weeks... We'll be going to that desert place. Guess what they have? They're the yep, communication lines. Cellular activity. That had changed a lot from the time we left in 92 for the 11 years that we served down there off and on. Technology came in. Lights came in. Everything that at one time was aloof to us, foreign to us, became presently distracting to us. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth, adds learning to his lips. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. We're going to stop there.
But I would like that to be something, oh, as we anticipate the barbecue season to marinate on. It's really a very special phrase. And that is that the words that God has given to us ought to be pleasant. There are many words that we can select. May temperament not be the motivation behind it or disappointment or frustration. There's much that we can do to afford edification to the weary soul. As we choose our words correctly, as we choose to make a difference for the soul of an individual who may be weary, I think this is just a beautiful verse. It's like giving them honeycomb. There's sweetness to it. You know, honeycomb is really a fascinating component, part of ultimately the refined honey that we get. Because with it, you get that waxy structure with it. And you may say, yeah, I really don't like that. But here's what, in my opinion, God built that in for. Chew on this. Chew on this. Because unless you're draining it out of the little honeycomb pockets, you get the wax. And actually, that was a component part of a treat in the old days. Because for them, it was like what chewing gum is to us. In other words, it was kind of sweetness and a stress reliever all at once. And then when that flavor wore out, put another piece of honeycomb in your mouth and you get the sweetness. And you get also that exercise that actually your mouth needs. Sometimes it just needs to be exhausted by chewing on what God has given to you in his word. Get tired, so tired that you'll limit how much words you will use. You'll use only the ones that are pleasant and full of sweetness. Sweetness to the soul distributing health to somebody's weary bones. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll close out. <laughs> that can be taken two ways. I'm taking it with pleasantry. Yeah, amen. <laughs>